Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. All right, good morning. Um, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for joining us. Again, Dr. Anderson is one of our amazing faculty at Columbia. Um, did his residency in Nashville at Vanderbilt, uh, came up to New York City for Fellowship of Memorial Sloan Kettering, and is now at uh, Columbia, where he's an assistant professor of urology, focuses on urologic oncology. Dr. Ennis, I know, I mean, a bunch of us have already asked you within the program, you know, um, your kind of, your your interest in urology and how you kind of narrowed down on urologic oncology. But for everyone listening out there, what was your path um, during residency? What kind of, who, you know, Dr. Himes talked about mentorship. Was there, were there any mentors or were there any experiences in residency that kind of ultimately pushed you uh, or kind of directed you in a, into urologic oncology specifically? Um, kind of like, how did you end up where you are right now? Yeah, I think uh, I would echo a lot of what Eli was saying. I think, you know, the, I, I was able to have really great mentorship as a resident uh, and the people who I kind of collided with along the way and worked with uh, really shaped uh, my interests and, you know, helped, uh, helped me make decisions along the way and kind of led me to where I am today. Great. Um, for those of, uh, like, for those of us, you know, kind of nearing uh, applying for fellowship uh, in urologic oncology, I guess in the days of, like, open surgeries kind of decreasing and uh, minimally invasive increasing for urologic cancer cases, what would you recommend, um, you know, for those who are a little bit worried about um, maybe not having or applying to places that may not have that open experience? Um, is, should there be any concern of that? Um, should they change their mindset? Um, or should they, you know, look a little bit more in depth into, you know, places that may offer both still? Yeah, that's a hard question. I mean, I think that's, that's something that many residency and, and fellowship programs are struggling with, which is, you know, is it still important to provide a balance in surgical approaches? And if so, how do you, how do you accomplish that? Um, clearly, nowadays, we're getting more, uh, better and better at doing minimally invasive robotic and laparoscopic and endoscopic approaches for even bigger and more challenging uh, cancer cases, so, which is great for our patients. Um, but then it does take away some of that open experience from, uh, from the residents and fellows. So, you know, I was, I was fortunate to have a lot of that experience when I was a resident. Um, and, you know, I don't think that open surgery is going to go away completely. Uh, certainly here at Columbia, we still do a reasonable amount of open surgery. And, and um, you know, I, I think that it, it is important to get that exposure, especially if you plan to be doing, um, you know, cancer cases and especially bigger cancer cases. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much again. Thank you for being with us. Um, I'll, I'll pass the torch on to you. Um, and then for anyone who has questions, please just post them in the chat and we'll We'll, we'll try to get to them with Dr. Anderson at the end. Great. Uh, well, it's great to be here with, with you guys today. Uh, hope everyone's doing okay. I know this is a tough time. Uh, and thanks for uh, Miad and, and Mike and Gina and, and everyone else and Alex who's, who's helped organize this uh, lecture series. Um, so today I wanted to talk about uh, stage one germ cell tumors. I think that, um, you know, as a, as a resident, this was certainly something I, I didn't get a lot of exposure to, but was heavily tested on. And so a lot of what I was 
learning was from you know prior tests and from summary statements and articles and so forth that I don't think I fully grasped until maybe I got to my fellowship where uh, we took care of a lot of testis cancer patients. So, you know, I'm hoping to unpack some of the evidence and the studies and the data that kind of support the current um, uh, uh, treatment options and the current, um, you know, recommendations about management of these patients. Importantly, you know, there's, this is like, I guess, treating localized prostate cancer where there are many right answers. And so knowing um, what the different options are, the risks and benefits and so forth, are going to arm you all with the uh, ability to have this, this sometimes difficult conversation with patients um, and help them make a decision. Um, so I have no disclosures. I want to do a brief outline and really kind of get to points number two and number three quickly. There's a, there's a relatively dense talk um, out of necessity, and so I want to try to get through as much as we can. Um, so testicular cancer, little fewer than 10,000 new cases a year, um, about 440 deaths, uh, most common in young men, and many testis cancer survivors. So last year, there were uh, just shy of 300,000 testis cancer survivors in the United States alone. So uh, when you talk about germ cell tumors, uh, you know, there's really seminoma and non-seminoma. Um, the, the numbers break down such that a little over half of new diagnoses are seminoma. They tend to be a little bit older, uh, so patients tend to be in their 30s and 40s, but most of the seminoma diagnoses are clinical stage one, whereas for non-seminoma, patients are a little bit younger and only about a third are clinical stage one, so many patients present with distant disease at diagnosis. Importantly, for patients with clinical stage one, whether it's for seminoma or non-seminoma, the survival uh, rate is almost 100%, which is you know, why this is such an important uh, talk and uh, concept, because you know, it's really about trying to find the best treatment for the right patient to minimize some of the short and long-term uh, side effects that we'll go on to discuss. All right, so we're talking specifically about clinical stage one. And so we're gonna just review staging real quick. Um, you know, when, whenever you see a patient with a suspicious uh, uh, testicular mass, first of all, you, you always wanna get a scrotal ultrasound. There's a very low but not insignificant risk of a contralateral germ, germ cell tumor. So you wanna know if that's present. Um, you would establish the T-stage through a radical orchiectomy. The T-stage is, is listed here below. Um, the tumor markers, the testis cancer is unique that it uses tumor markers uh, in, in the staging system. And the three tumor markers listed here um, need to be post-orchiectomy. So you establish your S-stage post-orchiectomy. Um, that's the T1 half, the half-lives of the two markers listed here. This is very important. We'll get back to this in a second, but AFP, uh, half-life of uh, five to seven days, HCG, two to three days. Um, Cross-sectional imaging is used to, to establish the N and M stages. So here are the nodal stages for patients with uh, retroperitoneal uh, lymph nodes. And then um, <coughs> as far as retroperitoneal lymph nodes, the, you know, there's this concept of the primary landing zone. So um, you know, really right-sided tumors kind of congregate Paracaval, precaval, interaortocaval, left-sided tumors are paraaortic and interaortocaval, and the lymphatic drainage goes from right to left. So this is a pretty common test question that we've seen in the past. Um, so it's important to know the primary landing zones and to know how the lymphatic flow can can go on testis cancer patients. And you know, there's a lot written about well, what is suspicious, what is an enlarged lymph node. I think that your level of suspicion um, 
you know, has to vary based on the clinical scenario, but really anything that's greater than five millimeters could be considered suspicious in the right clinical context. Um, so what we're going to talk about today, these are the different uh, stage categories, um, and we're going to talk specifically about stage 1A and 1B. So these are patients who have no lymph node metastasis, no distant metastasis, and normal tumor markers. Uh, this does not include, importantly, this does not include stage 1S, which is patients who have no visible metastasis but elevated tumor markers. That's a totally different set of patients, and those patients all get chemotherapy. So um, this is only for patients with negative markers and negative nodes. So we're going to start with a few cases. It's a really fun game called uh, Clinical Stage 1 Testicular Cancer Jeopardy. If you were here in person, I get to, I get to call on a few guys, but I'll do it, I'll do it uh, here by myself today. So uh, the first patient is 23 years old. He has a mixed germ cell tumor. He has uh, a chest, CT, abdomen, pelvis um, that are negative, and his preorchiectomy pre tumor markers are a signal for elevated AFP. At two weeks post-orchiectomy, you see his markers listed here as his AFP is still elevated. So the question is, does this patient have clinical stage 1A or B testis cancer? Uh, you know, would you treat this patient with chemotherapy because his AFP is elevated or not? Hopefully you're all thinking, I would not do that. I would wait and check his AFP again because I know his half-life is five to seven days. And in fact, this patient's AFP went down. So, uh, you know, lesson number one is always make sure you continue to trend your uh, tumor markers and, and uh, figure out where they're going to nadir before you pull the trigger on establishing stage and treatment. Uh, this is a 39-year-old male with a seminoma uh, who had normal markers and a, ne a negative chest imaging. And, you know, this was an outside radiology read and it was sent to you and it was reported no pathologic adenopathy. And it's really important that as urologists and surgeons that we're reading our own scans. And so I took a look at this patient's scan and had it reviewed here by our radiologist. And in fact, in the primary landing zone on this patient with a left-sided tumor, there's about a 1.2 centimeter paraortic node. So I would say that this patient does not have clinical stage one testis cancer, even though he was referred as such. Uh, patient three, this is a 31-year-old male who has a T2 mixed uh, non-germ cell, non-seminoma. His markers are negative, and his CT shows that he's got a seven millimeter mesenteric lymph node with no other abnormalities. So does this patient have clinical stage one disease? You know, they, a mesenteric lymph node is really not in the primary uh, landing zone for any germ cell tumor. So I would say that this is an incidental finding, and I would classify this patient as clinical stage one. Um, and then the last patient here is a, uh, a gentleman with uh, T2 seminoma. He had negative imaging, and his preorchiectomy tumor markers demonstrated an HCG that was elevated to 25, and about 10% of patients with seminoma can have an elevated HCG, so he, he was one of them. Uh, three weeks post-op, his markers were normal. Does this patient have clinical stage one? Yes, he does. His markers are negative, his CT is negative, and, uh, and he has clinical stage one. So uh, this is a talk I've, I've been giving for the past few years. Uh, just since last year, what's new? Well, we, we got the guidelines last year uh, sometime in April, which were tremendous. They did a great job with, with the uh, AUA guidelines. Uh, there, are, there was uh, one or two papers that updated active surveillance and then also an update on adjuvant BEP that we'll review. So I want to dive in now to uh, non-seminoma. So there's basically three options for patients with clinical stage, non, clinical stage one non-seminoma either surveillance, primary RPLND, or primary chemotherapy. 
the disease-specific survival is just shy of 100% for each of these options. Uh, and depending on where you live in the world, you might be recommended to have one or the other, and we'll see how that's reflected in some of the guidelines. But the key is to try to minimize treatment morbidity and to minimize over-treatment. Um, so what are some unique features of non-seminoma that might help inform your decision to, uh, of what to, what to treat, how to treat a patient with clinical stage one disease? First of all, non-seminoma has teratoma. And teratoma is both chemotherapy and radiotherapy resistant. Uh, number two is that we have a reasonable ability to predict who is at high risk of relapse or having um, uh, micrometastatic disease um, uh, based on some uh, clinical characteristics. And then the third uh, important unique feature is that non-seminoma is not very sensitive to radiation. So one option for treatment of non-seminoma <laughs> is active surveillance. The benefit of active surveillance is that up to 80% of patients with clinical stage one disease are cured by orchiectomy alone. So if you watch everybody, you avoid unnecessary treatment in 80% of patients. Uh, you avoid the overtreatment. And for patients who do recur on surveillance, there's a very high salvage rate. It's very rare to have a death from recurrent uh, non-seminoma on surveillance. The risk, though, is that there, this does have the highest risk of relapse, uh, depending on the, the risk of the patient, anywhere from 20 to, say, 40% of patients will relapse on surveillance. Um, when needed, salvage therapy for patients who recur usually requires full-dose chemotherapy. Uh, I'll tell you what I mean by usually in a little bit here, but uh, you know, a, a higher chance of needing uh, three or more cycles of BEP or EP. And you definitely need imaging, and there's a risk, this, this risk of loss to follow-up, and that's bad, and, and that's, this is definitely not a good treatment option for patients who uh, might not follow up. So just to summarize, a um, little bit less than 30% of patients overall are going to have a relapse on active surveillance. The risk of death on active surveillance is about 1% uh, of death from testis cancer. Most of these recurrences are early, so within six to eight months. The retroperitoneum is the most common site in maybe 60 to 70% of patients. Um, most of these, again, relapses occur early, and it's pretty rare to have a relapse um, uh, after five years. Um, now, we talked about risk stratification. There's bas basically two characteristics that have been used to risk stratify patients with uh, clinical stage one disease. One is the presence of lymphovascular invasion, and the other is the presence of embryonal carcinoma. So, Lymphovascular invasion is probably the most replicable and uh, uh, most reliable uh, clinical factor. And uh, in a recent meta-analysis, compared to patients without lymphovascular invasion, those with it had about a four-fold increased risk of uh, developing, um, uh, of recurring over time. And this translated to about a, almost a 50% risk of metastasis. Um, embryonal carcinoma, there's been many different ways that people have categorized this having any embryonal carcinoma, having pure embryonal carcinoma, uh, having at least 50% embryonal carcinoma. So there's been a bit of inconsistency across the literature. But again, this meta-analysis would suggest that patients who have at least 50% embryonal carcinoma uh, have a little more than two-fold increased chance of having metastasis, which translated to about a 40% absolute risk. Um, so I want to talk about a couple of important surveillance studies that have been done um, that really kind of show us what to expect 
when we put patients with non-seminoma on surveillance. This is one from, this is a Danish cohort. Um, it was published in 2014. And there are over 1,200 patients uh, with clinical stage one disease who were put on surveillance in a non-risk stratified uh, fashion. So anybody who had any amount of uh, cancer, whether it be LVI positive, embryonal predominant, anything was all, were all put on surveillance. Uh, the five-year risk of relapse is about 31%. Almost all of these patients relapsed with good risk disease. This is, again, the ICGGC risk of metastatic disease uh, risk stratification system, um, uh, system that uh, most of these patients had good risk disease, meaning they had a very favorable prognosis with salvage chemotherapy. Uh, about 4% of these patients were lost to follow-up, and that's, that was bad. Um, but overall, fewer than 1% of patients actually died of testicular cancer. And you can see here on the right, um, most of the recurrences happened early on. Uh, the, the bulk with, of, of them were in the first year. Most of them were detected with either CT scans and or tumor markers. And then this here to the left shows that you know, some patients were at relatively low risk, whereas some patients were at much higher risk, and that is depending on the presence of embryonal carcinoma and or lymphovascular invasion and or Reedy testes invasion, which is typically used to classify seminoma patients, but here they actually used it for non-seminoma. Uh, another uh, important study was a multi-institutional cohort, also published in 2014. Uh, this was almost 1,200 clinical stage one patients. It's a little bit of a lower risk cohort. Uh, only 16% of them had lymphovascular invasion. And you see that that translated into a lower risk of relapse, about 19% relapse. But uh, the LVI positive patients had a 40%, 44% chance of relapse, and the LVI negative patients had a 14% chance of relapse. So you see there, that's a very important risk classifier. Most of the relapsers were good risk. Uh, and again, most of these relapses occurred early on. Uh, were detected with CT or tumor markers, and less than 1% of patients died from uh, recurrent uh, non-seminoma. So then the question is, well, what happens? Let's say you treat a patient on surveillance, and what happens if they recur? Well, many studies uh, uh, would recommend treatment with full-dose chemotherapy, um, depending on their uh, metastatic risk strata. This is an interesting study that was published last year from, um, from Canada. And they have a policy here where if you relapse, the treatment, the, the management for a relapse on surveillance uh, could either be chemotherapy or RPLND, depending on the volume of disease, uh, the presence of markers, et cetera, which are kind of listed down here. Um, of the 580 patients who all comers, non-risk adapted, who were put on surveillance, 162 relapsed. Most of them were good risk. Most of them were in the retroperitoneum only. And what you can see here is that about 40% of them who did relapse got an RPLND, almost 60% got chemotherapy. And the majority of patients treated with these two different scenarios, uh, these two different treatment options were cured by that option alone, but a handful required the second treatment option. Um, and of the relapsers, four died of disease that are equated to 2.5% of relapsers or about less than 1% of the total population. So they would argue that by using chemotherapy and RPLND to uh, salvage patients with relapsed clinical stage one disease, that you can avoid the amount of patients who re require um, full dose chemotherapy. You can uh, kind of minimize the number of patients who have RPLND compared to immediate RPLND for everybody. 
And overall, the patients receiving any chemotherapy is lower than giving all patients who relapse salvage chemotherapy or giving everybody BEP. So this is kind of like the talk in a nutshell, which is uh, the different uh, trade-offs between all these different treatment approaches. But they would say that using RPLND sparingly for, the, for a select patient would help avoid salvage chemotherapy and maybe a preferable option as opposed to treating every relapser with full-dose salvage chemo. Um, so here are the current uh, uh, guidelines, recommendations for uh, surveillance of non-seminoma. Non uh, you can see here that you see the patient several times a year uh, to get uh, markers and do a history and physical. A uh, CT scan is used um, you know, primarily um, within the first two years, several times a year, and then annually thereafter, uh, as, as well as chest x-rays. Um, you know, many of the hospitals now are using low-dose CTs, um, and there's studies out there about whether MRI would be a reasonable replacement. You know, I think there's a lot of interest in uh, some of these, this microRNA that's been published on over the past few years, and maybe that's a better prognostic marker than imaging uh, or markers. So more to come on that. <clears throat> so some of the concerns about surveillance, uh, as we talked about before, non-compliance, um, you know, probably less than 5% uh, could be higher in community centers. And uh, patients who are non-compliant with surveillance do have a, a risk of dying from cancer. And that's, that's an important part of your conversation when you see these patients. Uh, although it'd be unlikely, uh, it's still higher than compliant patients. And then the other question is, well, if you're scanning men multiple times a year, um, you know, are you actually going to be putting them at risk for secondary malignancies due to ionizing radiation? And this is a modeling study from about 10 years ago that suggested, yeah, I mean, the, the more you scan patients, you know, you're going to have, there's going to be some uh, risk associated with that in secondary malignancies. You know, now that we're, we're talking about using low-dose CT, it'll be interesting to see how that changes the risk, but uh, definitely a, a risk uh, that you have to discuss about uh, active surveillance. Um, there was a study published uh, a little over, let's see, 20, uh, 10, 13 years ago that asked the question, can we do fewer CTs for patients on surveillance? Um, this is a good test question, uh, which is why we're talking about it. So um, this study randomized patients to either a CT scan at three months and 12 months or multiple CT scans up to 24 months. And this is a relatively low risk group. Only 10% of the patients had lymphovascular invasion. And the primary outcome of this study was a relapse with intermediate or poor risk disease. And really they found the two, um, the two different uh, modal methods to be non-inferior, uh, that a two scan method was non-inferior to a five scan method. Overall, you detected just a tad more recurrences with uh, the five CT, five CT method, but this was not statistically significant. And they actually didn't detect any um, recurrences of the 24-month CT. So, you know, I mean, there's some questions about this study and different numbers of scans in each group. And, you know, they stopped at 24 months. It may have been underpowered. Um, but point being is that scanning, scanning a patient every three months or four months for years and years is probably unnecessary. Um, all right, so let's talk about option two uh, for patients with non-seminal, which is a primary RPLND. So because the retroperitoneum is the most common site of disease uh, and high-risk patients have an upwards of 30% uh, chance of having positive lymph nodes, um, you know, there is a rationale to do a, an immediate surgery for patients who have high-risk clinical stage one non-seminoma. Um, again, the rationale is that up to 30% will have viable germ cell cancer. 
anywhere from 15 to 20%, 25% of patients will have teratoma, and that's been well replicated. Um, the results of uh, RPLND in well-selected patients are, are good. Uh, so about 90% of patients with low volume uh, nodal metastasis are cured with surgery alone. Uh, there is a risk of systemic relapse, um, but very rarely in the retroperitoneum, hopefully never, if you've done a good job. Um, patients who do relapse are almost always salvaged with chemotherapy, and fewer than 1% of patients who were treated with primary RPLND will ultimately die from uh, testis cancer, which is almost identical to the active surveillance uh, groups. So benefits of RPLND, you don't need imaging because you pretty much clear the retroperitoneum. In experienced hands who are offering nerve sparing surgery, the morbidity of this procedure is low. Um, and you know the, the downside is though, is you clearly need to have a, an experienced surgeon to do this. It is a big surgery. Um, and there is the highest rate of double therapy. So patients who need uh, RPLND and then either require adjuvant chemotherapy for high volume metastasis or salvage chemotherapy. Uh, there were multiple um, uh, series that have studied, that have reported the results of primary RPLND. And you see here that approximately, uh, well, they reported here 15% of, of uh, teratoma in the retroperitoneum. Um, and less than 10% chance of systemic relapse after uh, RPLND, but very few patients die from uh, germ cell uh, cancer. Um, all right, so then the last option here, we talked about surveillance, RPLND, and then the last option is primary chemotherapy or adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, and the chemotherapy we're talking about is BEP. And the benefits of something like this is that you avoid unnecessary surgery. So there are many patients who get a primary RPLND who have negative lymph nodes, uh, no teratoma, and they didn't probably need to have surgery. They didn't benefit from it. Um, it's good for community centers, and I'm going to explain why that is. Uh, but this can be delivered consistently across any, uh, any different hospital or uh, medical practice. And it has the highest chance of cure with a single treatment. Problem is, is that you're giving chemotherapy that does have risks. Um, to, to everybody, and this overtreats uh, at least half of the patients, it, and it doesn't treat teratoma. Um, so a recent uh, pooled analysis from a couple of years ago showed that if you give uh, adjuvant BEP to patients with uh, clinical stage one disease, that the relapse rate is less than 2%. Um, so as opposed to 30 or 40% of patients who relapse on surveillance, about 2% of patients relapse after BEP. And if you compare a single dose of BEP to surveillance for everybody, um, you give fewer chemo cycles overall. Uh, again, that's with the assumption that the patients who recurred on surveillance got uh, full dose um, chemo as opposed to a mix of chemo and RPLND. So there was an updated, um, there's some updated studies on BEP. This was one published last year. Um, so this is 246 men. They had a high-risk non-seminoma. All these are patients who had clinical stage 1B uh, who were given BEP, single dose of BEP. And their primary outcome was malignant recurrence at two years. Um, almost half, well, a little over 40% of these patients had some sort of acute toxicity. Usually these were, uh, you know, loss of uh, decreased cell counts, uh, leukopenia, et cetera. Um, 
And similar recurrence rates is what the pool analysis showed, uh, a four-year malignant recurrence rate of 1.8%. They did describe three teratoma recurrences, uh, and this was with about a four-year follow-up. Uh, so that overall, when you include malignant and non-malignant recurrences, there's about a 2.6% risk at two years. So, you know, the, the question, at least my question is, uh, and I, I, I think that, you know, BEP is a good treatment um, for well-selected patients, but one question that I think remains unanswered is that if you have, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20% of patients with teratoma at RPLND, which you know is chemotherapy resistant, but you have a less than 2% risk of retroperitoneal relapse after BEP, what happens to all the teratoma in the patients treated with BEP? Is it, is it that we haven't followed them long enough to see that these teratomas grow over time uh, and will need delayed surgeries? I think that the you know, longer-term follow-up is needed in some of the BEP studies to really determine the long-term safety. Um, but we talked about you know, BEP being maybe preferable for um, uh, centers who don't have experienced surgeons to do RPLND or community centers. And that's based on, um, you know, largely based on this study. This was a European study that was published in 2008 uh, out of Germany. And 382 German men uh, with clinical stage one non-seminoma were randomized to either ipsilateral templated RPLND um, versus BEP times one. And this was done over 61 hospitals all throughout Germany. Uh, there's a moderately, you know, about half, almost half these patients had LVI, uh, which just kind of uh, explains their, their overall risk of recurrence. And what they found was that the patients who had an RPLND had a higher recurrence rate than patients who had BEP. Uh, and that actually a lot of the recurrences after RPLND were retroperitoneal, uh, maybe outside of the template, but in any event, um, you know, both cancer, both uh, groups had zero cancer deaths. So even the patients who uh, recurred were salvaged. But you know, this calls into question: if you're uh, administering a treatment over multiple hospitals across the country, you know, is RPLND really the best best choice here? And uh, you know, potentially not. Um, so that's one kind of important comparative study. And this is going to be this this may be coming up on some of your tests. Another important study is a uh, is from the Swinoteca group. So this is a Scandinavian group who has done a whole bunch of research on uh, testicular cancer. And this is their published experience about risk-adapted management. And this, you know, I think this makes a lot of sense that certainly there's no reason to treat all patients with testis cancer the same way if you know that some patients are very high risk and some patients are relatively low risk. So here's how they did it. Um, they divided patients into those with lymphovascular invasion uh, and without. That was like their, their risk stratification uh, tool. And for patients with LVI, they recommended BEP. And for patients without LVI, they either recommended surveillance or BEP. And you can see that on the LVI positive patients, the relapse rate was zero to 3%, uh, and which was similar for patients with, without LVI who got BEP. And then the approximately 13 to 14% risk of relapse in the low risk surveillance group is what you'd expect based on some of the other studies. So they said that, uh, with about five-year follow-up, their cancer-specific survival was almost 100%. Um, and this did come at the expense of some short-term toxicity with the chemo, which is what we talked about uh, in you know, the last or two studies ago. But um, you know, there, there is a trade-off here. But overall, they, you know, they, they thought this system worked very, very well um, based on these, these data. And they would argue that you know, with this risk-adapted approach, 
it's better than surveillance for all or BEP for all. Uh, and it optimizes the number of um, uh, chemo cycles per patient uh, and the number, number of relapses. Overall, the mean number of chemotherapy courses was lowest for the risk-adapted approach uh, compared to uh, either BEP for all or surveillance for all. So, you know, again, the, this is all about risk and benefits. So, um, you know, the, the, clearly the benefits of BEP are that uh, it, lowers, um, it lowers the recurrence risk to 2% or so um, and uh, avoids the need of surgery. But you know the, the question are what are the what are the side effects of this? We talked about early side effects, uh, being uh, you know damp, you know bone marrow suppression, etc. But what about the late side effects? Um, there, this could be a whole talk in itself. But um, you know there's well documented late side effects of having uh, systemic chemotherapy, uh, and these these studies are all based on patients having uh, chemotherapy for metastatic disease. So whether or not we can apply those um, findings to patients who have having one or maybe two cycles of BEP uh, unclear. But just uh, just to mention this, um, you know the the two main concerns of late side effects of uh, chemotherapy are cardiovascular disease and secondary malignancies. So um, cardi cardiovascular disease, uh, there's a couple of of studies that have described the risk of cardiovascular disease after treatment for germ cell tumors. Um, this study from 2003, among almost 1,000 patients who were treated for uh, germ cell tumors, suggested there was uh, about a 2.6% odds of, of having a cardiovascular event for chemotherapy compared to surveillance. And the 10-year risk of a cardiac event was 3.4%. Uh, uh, you know, the question is, well, if these are young men and this is a 10-year risk, what is the 30-year risk or 40-year risk? Um, similarly, this uh, SEER study from 2015 suggested there was a nearly five-fold increased risk of cardiovascular death within the first year of diagnosis. Um, secondary malignancies, yeah, this has been investigated uh, a, a lot. Um, this is a, a Dutch cohort of almost 6,000 uh, testicular cancer survivors, and they estimated that the risk of a secondary malignancy at 10 years was about 10% overall. Uh, and patients who got platinum chemotherapy had a hazard for a uh, secondary malignancy of about 2.4%. Um, and their finding was that this was a dose response so that more platinum is more risk. So this goes back to the question, does a single uh, cycle of platinum have the same risk as two, three, or four cycles of platinum? Probably not, um, but I don't know if anyone can really quantify what the long-term risks of a single uh, cycle of BEP are, or if there are any long-term risks. Um, this is another uh, Dutch uh, a study from uh, a, this, a similar Dutch cohort. Uh, again, high risk of secondary malignancies for patients treated with chemo. And they actually equated the risk of either a secondary malignancy or cardiovascular disease for patients treated with chemo to uh, as if they were smoking. So a similar risk factor as smoking was. All right, so then we've talked about these three things, RPLND, surveillance, BEP, um, you know, it's not totally black and white. There's a lot of right answers out there. Um, and either way, the survival is nearly 100%. So I think this is really balancing over-treatment, under-treatment, risks, benefits. And, you know, what's important for some patients may not be important for others. So I do think that there's, uh, you know, an element of shared decision-making that's going to go in 
to uh, the discussion of anybody with uh, clinical stage one disease, but we do have guidelines to, to fall back on here. And you can see that depending on uh, the guideline, where, where are the guidelines from, whether it be US, European, et cetera, um, the recommendations are gonna be slightly different. Everybody recommends that for patients with clinical stage 1A disease, so low risk clinical stage one, non-seminoma, no LVI, uh, we should survey those patients. Maybe a 15% risk of uh, relapse on surveillance, but that is the, uh, the widespread recommended treatment option. Now, the question is for the higher risk patients, what do we do for them? The Europeans recommend BEP. They don't like RPLND, uh, in part based on that 2008 study, but they recommend BEP. And you know the NCCN pretty much gives all three of these options um, for patients with clinical stage 1B. Um, the AUA similarly recommends that for patients with clinical stage 1A, we should recommend surveillance for them. And uh, similarly to the NCCN for clinical stage 1B, patients with LVI or higher risk non-seminoma, clinical, we, we should either talk about surveillance, RPLND, or BEP. And this is shared decision-making. This is you know, sometimes challenging conversation, uh, but all three of those are reasonable options. All right, so we did non-seminoma. I've got about 20 minutes left. I wanna get through seminoma um, and then maybe have time for questions if there are any. Um, so seminoma, slightly different disease and slightly different treatment options. So um, for seminoma, Surveillance, primary radiation, and primary chemotherapy are all options. The disease-specific survival is about 100%. I hope that by the end of these next few slides, the answer will be a little bit clearer. I don't think there's quite as much controversy about seminoma. Um, in, in to you know, just cut to the chase, I think pretty much all these patients should get surveillance, but uh, I'll show you why that is. Um, so seminoma is unique because it's sensitive to radiation. There's no teratoma. And it actually is a little bit more difficult to risk stratify um, or to identify the highest risk patients. Um, I'll show you why that is. So to first uh, talk about surveillance, there's, there's been a few important surveillance studies. They're actually the same ones that, that reported the non-seminoma patients, but uh, this is the, the uh, study from the multi-institutional study from 2014, um, 1,300 patients with non-seminoma, with seminoma, excuse me, 13% relapse. So this is a uh, all-comer group, high-risk, low-risk, however you want to define that, 13% relapse, and that's, you know, the, the relapse rate is at least double that for non-seminoma. So you see this is a lower chance of relapse. And the, the patterns of relapse are also different. So whereas non-seminoma tended to relapse within six to eight months, now we're talking about like a year and a half for seminoma. So it's a little bit of a slower disease. Uh, it takes a little bit longer for, to, to capture all those relapses although 100% of these relapses were in the good risk category. And then almost all of them were detected on CT scan. And these patients were salvaged. So uh, anyone who uh, had a relapse of their seminoma, either were given chemotherapy or sometimes radiation, and nobody died. Um, this is a, another Canadian study that documented a 17% risk of relapse. And that if you, uh, this is a, a figure that is demonstrating actually conditional risk of relapse, but um, point being is that if you make it by year five, the chance of having a recurrence of your seminoma is less than 2%. Uh, so most of these recurrences happen early on, but it does take a little bit longer than non-seminoma. And uh, for the all other studies that have reported uh, seminoma surveillance, uh, almost 100% cancer-specific survival, 
with a usually a less than 20% chance of recurring. So, uh, you know, just to, to kind of summarize this, almost all of these relapses occur in the retroperitoneum. As with non-seminoma, not good for non-compliant patients. Uh, it takes a little bit longer for a recurrence to happen than in non-seminoma. So, you know, you might need to follow these patients a little bit longer than three years. Uh, some have reported it anywhere from a 5 to 10% risk of relapses after three years, which is different than non-seminoma. Um, the AUA has a, a recommended surveillance protocol that you see here. Um, you know, importantly, markers are not a routine part of this. Um, and I think neither, and neither is chest x-ray. So that's definitely different than non-seminoma. So uh, see the patient a couple times a year, CT scans periodically. You don't have to routinely do markers and you don't have to routinely do chest x-rays as it's pretty rare to pick up a seminoma recurrence on chest imaging where you wouldn't have otherwise picked it up on abdominal imaging and CT. So we talked about in non-seminoma about the fact that we're pretty good at identifying who's high risk and low risk for having a recurrence. But what about in seminoma? So uh, this is from Canada and their surveillance, uh, this is from 2002, and you know, they reported very good surveillance uh, outcomes, high risk of survival, et cetera. Uh, but interesting with the study is that they, they showed us that based on their criteria, they thought that patients who had reed testes invasion uh, or a large tumor size had a significantly higher chance of recurring than patients without those. And so these were approximately twofold increased risk of recurrence. So this kind of uh, led to the thought that, well, maybe we can identify patients with seminoma who are going to be more likely to recur. Uh, however, even the highest risk patients, okay, uh, have a less than 20% chance of recurrence. So, you know, the, the lowest risk non-seminoma patients have a 15 to 18% chance of recurrence. The highest seminoma risk patients have a less than 20% chance of recurrence overall. So, uh, you know, the, the argument against risk ratification here is that even high-risk patients actually have a pretty low chance of recurrence, relatively speaking. Uh, and this was a, a paper from 2018 that kind of tried to put all this, all these studies together, almost 10,000 patients with clinical stage one seminoma treated on surveillance. Um, you know, over 75% of them overall were cured after orchiectomy alone, regardless of their risk factors. And they found that uh, when they tried to do a meta-analysis of patients with large tumor size or reed testes invasion, that they quote, the prognostic power of both tumor size and reed testes is too weak to justify their routine use in clinical practice. Um, they said that tumor size was associated with, it's a continuous risk, so there's not a definite cut point that should be used, and there's no standard definition of reed testis invasion. And similar to non-seminoma, I think that, you know, the question about using mRNA, MI, microRNAs to better prognosticate patients who are at risk for recurrence is, you know, that's the, the next question. Um, the AUA also does not recommend uh, using uh, reed testis invasion or tumor size to uh, determine the risk of recurrence for patients with stage one seminoma. Um, so if a patient can't have uh, surveillance or doesn't want surveillance, then the two options are, are either radiation or primary chemotherapy. So radiation is delivered, it's a relatively low dose of radiation, anywhere from 20 to actually probably should be about 25 gray. Um, very successful at reducing the risk of recurrence. Uh, almost never having it, never have an infield recurrence. It's very, very rare. 
Um, distant recurrence is anywhere from three to five percent. So because the infield recurrence risk is so low, you basically don't need uh, CT surveillance, the retroperitoneum. Almost everybody who recurs can be salvaged with chemotherapy and the risk of death is, is less than 1%. So similar to surveillance. Um, there's a couple of important studies and th these come up on tests about radiation field, radiation dose um, that are worth knowing. So this is a, a study from, it's an old study from 1999. And the, and the question in this study was, when you give radiation, adjuvant radiation for clinical stage one disease, do you give it in a dog leg fashion, which covers not only the retroperitoneum hero, but also the ipsilateral iliacs, or do you just focus it on the retroperitoneum? And so they randomized almost 500 patients to the dog leg versus para-aortic strip. Uh, Recurrence-free survival was almost identical. Um, the difference is that there were slightly fewer pelvic recurrences with the dog leg field, which is what you'd expect, but increased spermatogenic toxicity. Um, so that's the field question, dog leg or strip. Uh, the dose question, um, so here's a, a study of randomizing patients who are getting radiation to either 20 gray or 30 gray. Uh, almost all these patients had periodic strips. Um, and this was a non-inferior study. So uh, they found that 20 gray was non-inferior to 30 gray, uh, which you can see at the Kaplan-Meier curve here. However, um, you know, there were differences in toxicity. So at four weeks, the 30 gray group had more lethargy and were less able to work. Um, so higher toxicity, similar recurrence rate, um, you know, that kind of led to 20 gray as being the, the preferred dose. Uh, so there have also been a couple of uh, um, comparative studies uh, with radiation. So one is, this is kind of an old study um, looking at RPLND, which people used to do, you know, back in the 80s uh, versus uh, radiation for um, clinical stage one seminoma. Uh, and this is not a randomized trial. This is an observational trial that, you know, they, they basically just changed their practice patterns over time and they're reporting that. But uh, they gave old radiation, little higher doses, you know, with cobalt radiation. I'm sure that these were more toxic. Uh, there's more toxicity, although they didn't report that. Um, but they actually didn't report any infield recurrences uh, in either group and a similar risk of out-of-field recurrences. So they actually used this to say that they probably didn't need to be doing RPLND um, for patients with clinical stage one disease. Um, so another comparative study was using radiation or surveillance. So which is better here? Uh, this study, uh, interestingly, looked just at patients who were at what they would consider the highest risk of recurrence. So the high, uh, uh, large tumor size greater than six centimeters. Um, and this is also just an observational cohort study. Um, and they found that in the highest risk patients, actually they reported about a 30% risk of recurrence. Um, in the radiation patients, it was two, 3% chance of recurrence, which is what you'd expect. But overall, the surveillance group had fewer treatment episodes per patient than the radiation group. And the overall survival at 10 years was uh, the same in both groups. So they actually used this information to suggest that surveillance is the preferred option, even for patients who had higher risk disease. So what about the toxicity of radiation? We briefly mentioned that with the uh, um, 20 versus 30 gray study. Um, so there's definitely acute toxicity for, uh, with primary radiation, bowel, hematologic, there's infertility. Um, you know, the late toxicity is probably the more concerning thing. And as with chemo, the chances of having cardiovascular disease and mortality 
uh, or secondary malignancies are, are definitely higher for patients who've been treated with radiation. So you're taking a curable disease uh, in clinical stage one uh, non-seminoma and uh, you know, potentially imparting a um, long-term risk of something that uh, may be incurable or chronic um, in, in otherwise healthy young men. So this here really led to people rethinking the use of um, primary radiation for clinical stage one disease. And I would say that that is probably pretty infrequently done now, especially uh, in the United States. The alternative to radiation uh, for patients who can't get or don't want surveillance is single agent chemotherapy. So whereas with non-seminoma, we talked about giving BEP, which we know that cisplatin is very, very good at treating germ cell tumors. A single dose of it was shown to reduce recurrence rates tremendously. Well, people have asked the question about whether carboplatin could be used to reduce the risk of recurrence for patients with seminoma. And in fact, it, it does reduce the risk of recurrence in seminoma. Um, we'll talk about here, this is a good test question here, that it actually may lower the risk of contralateral germ cell tumors. It's a good, good one to store away. Um, so one important study actually randomized patients to either radiation or carboplatin. And this was a non-inferiority study. And so they had almost uh, over 400, uh, 1,400 patients, and the primary outcome was relapse-free rate. And they found that the relapse-free rate with carbo was not inferior to radiation, which you can see illustrated with Kaplan-Meier here. Um, and the carboplatin had fewer contralateral germ cell tumors. So, you know, the, the authors here use this information to suggest that, you know, carboplatin maybe is better than radiation, and, and we really shouldn't be doing radiation uh, given the long-term risks. Um, there's a group in, in Spain that has published numerous reports about kind of their own experience with this risk-adapted treatment. So patients with risk factors, which changed a bit over time how they define that, would get carboplatin, and patients with no risk factors would get surveillance. Um, the most recent publication looked at the presence of either large tumors and reedy testes invasion as a risk factor. Uh, so patients with both of those would get carbon. And in the 2014 study, they found that the um, relapse-free, 10-year disease-free survival uh, was lower as expected with surveillance. Uh, still about 85% of patients were cured with orchiectomy alone. Uh, 96, 97% were disease-free after uh, carbo. All relapses were salvaged with chemotherapy. Um, but kind of suspiciously and concerningly, if you looked at uh, the highest risk seminoma patients, uh, so those with reedy testes invasion who, you know, have maybe a 20% chance of relapse, they still had almost a 10% chance of relapse with carboplatin. So, you know, the question is, is that, is that a meaningful reduction in recurrence? How effective is this treatment for the highest risk patients? Um, another study from the, the Swinoteca group had a similar uh, protocol where they treated patients with risk factors with carboplatin and without risk factors with surveillance. Um, and they found that, you know, here kind of surprisingly, the patients with risk factors who got carboplatin uh, had a 9.3% chance of recurrence with carboplatin compared to a 15% chance of recurrence with surveillance. So I think, you know, they labeled the efficacy of carboplatin as disappointing. And I think many others would kind of question 
how good is carboplatin if even in high-risk patients, the risk of relapse is, is relatively high compared to the risk of uh, you know, the relapse on surveillance? Um, you know, the other question is that with, with radiation, you sterilize the retroperitoneum, and so it's very rare to recur in retroperitoneum, but with um, carboplatin, uh, in this kind of pooled study, you'd see that many of the recurrences were in the retroperitoneum. Um, so you still have to watch it. You can't forget the retroperitoneum even after carboplatin. Um, in patients who do recur on carboplatin, most of these are in the good risk group. Most of the time, this is in the retroperitoneum. Most of them can be salvaged with chemotherapy. So uh, it's not, you're not necessarily increasing the risk of death from seminoma by treating with carboplatin, but you know, it's, a, it's questionable efficacy, um, but with a high salvage rate. Um, so then finally here, let's talk about toxicity, just like the Meg coming out to get a surfer there. Um, you know, there is acute toxicity with, um, with carboplatin, which, which we, we know well. It, it's toxic to the bone marrow, nausea, vomiting. Uh, people feel lethargic, kind of, kind of lousy. But this long-term risk question uh, is, has been kind of unanswered. Uh, up until last year, the, the biggest study, which was not very big, only 200 patients, uh, suggested that uh, compared to general population, there was really no higher risk of mortality, cardiovascular disease, or secondary malignancies in patients treated with carbo uh, versus surveillance. However, a, an updated, uh, uh, updated study from last year uh, based on patient questionnaires actually identified about a 5% chance of a secondary malignancy in carboplatin-treated patients, which they estimated to be about double the expected risk. So, you know, we're going to have more and more, uh, hopefully, uh, information about the long-term risks of carboplatin, and that can help us, um, you know, really quantify some of these long-term risks. But multiple people have written about what should we do for clinical stage 1 disease, um, should we give carbo? And I think just to summarize a lot of these um, kind of consensus statements and expert uh, statements, uh, what they would say that for clinical stage one disease, we know that radiation is toxic. Uh, we know that it causes long-term risks of secondary malignancies and uh, cardiovascular disease. There's not a lot of great long-term carboplatin data, uh, which is still true. Uh, even after carboplatin, you still need to watch your retroperitoneum. We don't know really how we should be risk stratifying these patients based on the currently clinically available risk factors that we have. And that even patients who you would consider high risk, the vast majority of them are cured by orchiectomy. Um, so their punchline is that we should survey everybody with seminoma. And I, I would agree with that. Uh, I think that it's pretty unlikely unless you cannot have this, uh, you cannot administer surveillance or if a patient is, you know, gonna be on a uh, deployed or something like that for a long period of time, uh, really surveillance sh should be offered. Um, and the guidelines would, would uh, agree with that. So NCCN strongly prefers surveillance uh, and the European guidelines also recommend surveillance. Uh, so do the AUA guidelines. So uh, the AUA guidelines uh, flat out state that we should offer surveillance um, uh, for patients with clinical stage one disease and that adjuvant radiation and carbo are less preferred. So with that, I am done. And I will, four minutes to spare, can I answer any questions? Yeah, thank you, um, Dr. Anderson. That was an amazing, I, I really appreciate, I'm sure all the residents appreciate focusing on the management of um, just, you know, the clinical stage one seminomas and non-seminomas tumor. One question um, we had was, 
Um, and I think we've heard this several times in the lectures, um, uh, the Empire series with regards to management of clinical stage 1B uh, disease. When people have talked about high volume centers and high volume centers have better outcomes, what exactly does that mean in terms of the number of operations for RPLNDs? Like what is a, is it five, is it 10, uh, um, you know, um, what does high volume mean right. for better outcomes? So I think that, um, you know, most, if you look at some of the RPLND literature, most RPLNDs are done at low volume centers that perform like, you know, one or two a year. Um, and so clearly that's a low volume center. What is a high, how many do you have to do? Uh, I actually don't know. I, I'd have to look back at some of those papers, but I would say that most high volume centers probably do anywhere from 10 to 20 a year, if not many, many more than that. And I think that that is um, instrumental in making sure that patients um, have a good outcome who are going to get you know, RPLND. Certainly that's true for the um, you know, post-chemo setting. And those are much more difficult surgery. But, but even for primary where, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, whether you do it open or robotically, however your approach is, you're talking about doing a pretty major surgery that does have risks, including risk of uh, anejaculation, which is a long-term, sometimes permanent uh, change in, in young, otherwise healthy men. So doing it right doing it right the first time is critical. And if, if a patient can't get a surgery like that, then probably primary RPLND is not the right answer for them. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, Dr. Margolin and Dr. Lasaya have very similar questions in regards to um, how do you counsel patients on future fertility, um, um, you know, when it comes to whether it's prior to surgery, chemo, um, radiation, whatever. How, yeah, how, how does that play into um, decision making? Right. So, you know, I, I think um, in, in most patients who have a normal contralateral testicle who are going to get an orchiectomy, I don't, you don't necessarily have to do any sort of fertility discussion or sperm making prior to orchiectomy. But in patients who are going to require adjuvant um, chemotherapy, RPLND, anything, any of those treatments can impact uh, fertility, whether it be due to an ejaculation with RPLND or, or due to uh, toxicity, to testicular toxicity to the, uh, from chemotherapy or radiation. So all of those patients in my practice uh, get, have their sperm bank, at least if they're, gonna, if they're still planning on um, having a family one day. Some patients, it's not important, uh, but I do counsel everybody on that. Okay. Great. Well, in respect for your time, um, thank you 